It is November 1952, just days after the election that vaults Dwight David Eisenhower into the White House. We're in Philadelphia at the Remington Rand Building, where a company-wide champagne hangover is settling in. The whole company has been celebrating since election night when Remington Rand's Univac computer accurately predicted the results of an election hours before it was over. And now, the Univac is a sensation. Today's newspaper headlines are calling it an electric brain, and the public believes the Univac is the leading computer in the world. IBM, the giant of data processing for decades, suddenly seems like old news. So James Rand, owner of Remington Rand, wants to press the advantage and bury his longtime nemesis. He calls a meeting with J. Presper Eckert, the brilliant physicist who helped create the Univac. Rand is hard-driving and crass. Eckert is a rumpled academic idealist. We've got the wind behind us, Eckert. The publicity is all in our favor. We have to move fast. I'm not sure what you mean. Come on, we can sell our electronic computers hard because IBM is weighed down by those old mechanical tabulating machines. If IBM tries to sell electronic computers, its customers would have to throw out all the old machines IBM sold them over the past 30 years. It would drive IBM out of business. They're stuck. But IBM has a lot of resources and a lot of connections. Jesus, Eckert, get a spine. They're on the ropes. Watson is a vain old fool. His son doesn't know what he's doing. Besides, they're all tied in knots trying to fend off a government antitrust suit. You went to them for funding and they called you an idiot. That's why you're here now. So come on, help me do this. Help us build newer, faster computers and leave IBM behind. Eckert sighs and looks vaguely at the ceiling. There's tension between these two men. Eckert wishes his longtime engineering partner, John Mockley, were here. But Rand recently banned Mockley from the company. Some crap about Mockley having communist leanings, Eckert thinks. Eckert can't stand the current political climate. This McCarthyism is ruining good people because of little more than a rumor or accusation. Eckert wonders how he's going to invent anything new without Mockley's help. Eckert and Mockley are a team. During World War II, they built the first electronic computer in the world, called the ENIAC at the time. Joining Remington Rand was Eckert and Mockley's second choice after IBM wasn't interested in them, and working under James Rand has been tough from the start. Not only has Rand ousted Mockley, but he's making life hard on Eckert's star programmer Grace Hopper and other female programmers Eckert brought into the company. These women are pioneers in writing the logic for computers, but Rand doesn't believe women should have jobs like that. He's driving them out. So now, Rand wants even more from Eckert's lab while the lab is in chaos. Eckert is a reserved man, but he looks at Rand with a hardness in his eyes. Mr. Rand, do you know any scientists working on computers? No, that's why I brought you here. It's a pretty small community, so I hear things. And while you're making a mess of my lab and pushing us to do stunts like the CBS broadcast, IBM has not been sleeping. In fact, I'm willing to bet that the publicity we've been getting is lighting rockets under their lab. So what? <laughs> the market is ours to lose. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're still right after IBM comes out with their new machine. <laughs> what new machine? I hear they are going to call it the 701. 
Eckert sees that Rand has no idea what he's talking about. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. In our last episode of the first computer war, Thomas Watson Sr., faced with an antitrust lawsuit by the U.S. Justice Department, finally turned over the reins of IBM to his son, Thomas Watson Jr. Where Watson Sr. had seen the lawsuit as a threat to his legacy, his son saw it as an opportunity to finally do what his father had resisted for years, modernize the company. You're listening to Episode 4, Abdication. Thomas Watson Jr. promptly rounds up IBM's top engineers and assembles them in a conference room. His father has run IBM for nearly 40 years, and now he's in charge. Okay, I think everyone is here. I don't need to tell you that IBM has been embarrassed by Remington Rand and its Univac. You know what's really embarrassing? Customers calling and asking when we're going to offer a Univac. Not when will we offer an IBM electronic computer. They say, when will we have a Univac? The room breaks out in alarmed crosstalk. Watson Jr. puts up a hand to quiet the din. In the past, my father didn't worry too much about speed to market. We pushed the technology at our own pace. It was important to design and test any new machine so nothing would go wrong when we installed it for a customer. Our factory managers would meticulously design an efficient manufacturing process to make new machines, and all of that took time. One of the younger engineers, one who hasn't yet seen Watson Jr.'s quick temper, blurts out, We can beat Univac! Tom Watson Jr. steadies himself. He hates the interruption and might normally blow up at this young man. But he's got a more important point to make. Yes. In fact, we have no choice. We must beat Univac. So... Our rules have to change. Speed to market is everything. We're going to improvise when we have to. We can't afford to test everything to death. We are going to take over any spare space so we can work on every part of the machine in parallel. We are putting all the company's resources behind our new computer, the 701, and we are going to get it to the market in months, not years. He pauses. The assembled employees look at him in stunned silence. This is so far from how things have been done in the past. They sit nervously and motionless, waiting. And now, Watson's temper flares. Why the hell are you sitting here? Get going! Tom Watson Jr. knows that IBM has one thing that no competitor can match. Over the decades, the Watsons have built a powerful corporate culture. Some of that culture is a little peculiar to outsiders. IBM has its think signs in every office and factory. It doesn't allow its employees to drink and coerces them into wearing crisp suits with white shirts. At big gatherings, employees sing company songs. IBM is something like a business cult 
but that makes IBMers extraordinarily dedicated to their company. If they are threatened by a competitor, IBM employees at every level rise to the occasion. They'll work like mad to help the company that has become their life. The burgeoning 701 design team can't find the space it needs inside IBM, so it starts work on the third floor of a tie factory. Tar sometimes leaks from the roof and splatters on engineering drawings. The engineers wipe it off and keep working. At one point, the team gets stuck trying to figure out a conventional way to make something called a vacuum switch on the new machine's tape drive. One engineer drives out to a store and buys rubber pants made for babies, and his group cuts the pieces and uses them for the switches. The team throws aside budgets and schedules, previously a fact of life in the labs. The 701 will be manufactured in Poughkeepsie, New York. The factory manager assembles his team to design the process. He offers advice that would never have been spoken at IBM before. It's the first computer assembly line in the world. Now, I can't tell you how to do it, but I do know that customers will be coming to visit us, so you need to make it look like we know how to build computers. Tom Watson Jr. spends every Monday morning with the design team and drives the 701 forward. As the team coalesces, it increasingly seems like the new IBM, Watson Jr.'s IBM. His father stays in the background, focusing on the business of punch card machines, which, after all, may not be the future, but is still the money-making engine inside the company. The IBM team secretly readies the 701 in the lab and then ships it to headquarters in New York. The ground floor has long been IBM's showcase for its latest technology. While IBM marketers set out to sell businesses on the usefulness of IBM's new computer, the Watsons want to sell the general public on the wonder of IBM's new computer. The morning of April 7, 1953, the doors of IBM's building in Manhattan opened to allow the first public viewing of the 701, the computer that will go head-to-head -head against the UNIVAC. The 701 looks elegant, showcased in a setting of soft-finished aluminum walls and recessed lighting. Unlike any computer before, the 701 is housed in a collection of cabinets, each roughly the size of a refrigerator. Remember, this is the smaller computer. To move previous models of computers from one location to another, engineers had to break the machine down and then rebuild it at the next site. The 701's modular concept means IBM representatives can wheel each piece through a regular-sized door, plug the cabinets together, and get the computer working in a fraction of the time. To make that point, IBM spreads out the 701's components in the lobby display, arranging the pieces like furniture. Visitors can view all of this overhead from a balcony enclosed by a sloping plate glass. From here, they can observe operations and discuss the computers. 150 of the nation's elite scientists and businessmen come for the opening, a testament to the elder Watson, still IBM's CEO, and IBM's enduring clout. The list includes Robert Oppenheimer, who led the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb. His appearance alone creates a stir. Just the day before, the government had set off an atom bomb test in the Nevada desert. Watson Sr. addresses the assembled scientists, lauding them for their contributions to the nation. He reminds his audience that computers are only tools. Now that we have the machines, 
They are of no value unless scientists put them to use. It annoys me when they speak about the electrical brain. There isn't any such thing and never will be. These machines play a small part and are assistance to the scientists who are trying to get the answers quickly. The only benefit of the machines is time, and time is important. To finish off IBM's assault on the UNIVAC, Watson has one more punch to throw. The CBS News crew, the same unit that put the UNIVAC on the air during the election, shows up to cover the 701 dedication and air it on the nightly news. Weeks go by. The Watsons and IBM can feel the momentum shifting. While IBM is gaining momentum, Remington Rand starts to have issues. See, the company James Rand has built is a conglomerate. It makes and sells everything from electric shavers to industrial television systems. And James Rand just can't stay focused. Remington Rand has a vast sales organization, but it turns out that a shaver salesman can't effectively sell a Univac. The company has to manufacture so many different kinds of products, it doesn't develop the computer-making expertise to match IBM. And Eckert's lab at Remington Rand is small, underfunded, and under siege. Morale sinks. IBM spends lavishly to lure hundreds of electronic engineers from universities and from competitors, even poaching some from Remington Rand. Remington Rand may have been there first, but IBM is now moving fast. Soon after the 701 hits the market, IBM announces a more advanced machine, the 702. The newer machine is a huge leap ahead of the Univac. The type of vacuum tubes IBM uses can process information twice as fast as the Univac tubes and are more reliable. About the same time, IBM begins selling the 650, a smaller electronic calculating machine. Remington Rand had no answer to any of this. Ultimately, though, IBM doesn't beat Remington Rand with technology. IBM wins with that powerful Watson legacy. Salesmanship. When a Univac salesman visits a client, he focuses on technical specifications like mercury delay lines and decimal versus binary computation. The terminology goes right over the heads of customers. When a team of IBM salesmen call on a customer, well, they show how the installation of an IBM computer will get the payroll out faster, keep better track of sales, boost efficiency, and save money. In 1955, IBM blows past Remington Rand in the computer market. IBM has 193 computer machines on order, while Remington Rand has orders for just 65. The gap between IBM and its competitors continues to widen. Newcomers to computing, like RCA, Raytheon, and National Cash Register, never challenge IBM's lead. Victory over Rand for the Watsons is complete when the March 28, 1955 issue of Time magazine lands on newsstands. Tom Watson Jr. gazes out from the cover, his hair graying and the corners of his eyes etched with kind-looking wrinkles. Behind him is a drawing of a computer made lifelike with facial features and arms. The headline reads, IBM's Thomas Watson Jr. Clink, Clank, Think. Inside, the lengthy story is all about IBM computers. All of the photos are of the Watsons, or IBM. No mention at all of Remington Rand. 
A few years earlier, the elder Watson would have looked at the image of his son on the time cover and felt a rush of resentment. For four decades, he was IBM, and IBM was him. He wasn't ready to give up his position to anyone, not even his son. But in 1955, Thomas Watson Sr. is past age 80. His son has crossed 40. The father has little to do with IBM's impressive response to the UNIVAC. So now, he is standing back and letting his son handle it. As the elder Watson takes in the time story now, he thinks with pride that his offspring have grown up, both IBM and Tom Watson Jr. And so, Watson Sr. thinks... It's time to go. It is May 8th, 1956. Thomas Watson Sr., age 82, arrives at IBM headquarters at 10.08 in the morning. He calls his son, Tom Watson Jr., into his office. Young Watson doesn't know what to expect. A compliment? An insult? He's surprised when his father stands to greet him, grinning. Tom, I'll come right out and say it. I would like you to take over as IBM's chief executive. This means so much to me. It's the first promotion I think I ever got from you without a fight. There is no ceremony. None of the elder Watson's usual pomp. No hint of a father-son argument. Tom Watson Jr. is taken aback by the unexpected sense of quiet dignity. A photographer steps in to capture the moment. Father and son stand in front of a bookcase in Watson's office, shaking hands tentatively, gripping each other's fingers rather than clasping palm to palm. Watson Sr. looks ancient, and he stares intently into his son's eyes as if to say, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm handing you my life. Don't screw it up. Tom Watson Jr., handsome as a Hollywood version of a CEO, stares back calmly, his eyes reassuringly saying, Trust me, Dad. I won't let you down. Two weeks later, Watson arrives at his office at 10.42 a.m. for his last day at IBM. He first meets with his son for 16 minutes. For the next 21 minutes, he gets a haircut and a manicure in the office. At 11.38, he meets with the IBM board of directors for 40 minutes, then slips into an anteroom next to his office to take a nap. At 1.10 p.m., Watson arrives for a luncheon at the St. Regis Hotel a few blocks from IBM headquarters. Tom Watson Jr. acts as host, and most of IBM's directors and top officers join the lunch to honor his father. In the afternoon... Thomas Watson Sr. briefly goes back to his office. There, he puts on his hat and walks out of his office door, forever leaving behind his old wooden desk, the French furniture, the dark red draperies, and those think signs that had surrounded him for years. Watson takes the elevator down to the lobby, where he walks past the display of the 702 machine. In the display area, work crews are ripping out the oriental rugs and dark wood that had been the decor of the lobby since the 1930s. They are now installing a modern decor that includes bright white floors, crimson walls, metallic desks, and a sleek, simple 702 on the wall. The building has the look and feel of a modern generation. Tom Watson Jr.'s 
generation. After passing the 702, Watson exits the lobby and slides into a car waiting to take him to his home in New Canaan, Connecticut. Watson's company now surges with youth and spirit. IBM has been tearing up the budding computer industry. The company is a month away from unveiling SAGE, a massive military project IBM had won over Remington Rand. SAGE stands for Semi-Automatic Ground Environment. It is intended to analyze radar signals to guard the skies against aircraft and missiles from the Soviet Union. It's the middle of the Cold War, after all. The SAGE machine is by far the biggest, most complicated, and most reliable computer built yet. IBM now employs 72,504 people. That's more than double the number of employees five years earlier. Its 1956 revenue will hit $892 million. That's more than double the revenue of four years before. Watson Jr.'s determination to pivot, some might say gamble, had paid off. Watson Sr.'s old rival, James Rand, is now 70. His mistakes keep helping IBM surge into the lead. Rand merges Remington Rand with another electronics company, Sperry, to form Sperry Rand. Putting the companies together further distracts from efforts to invent new technology. Remington Rand keeps losing market share. By now, Univac machines have about 10% of the computer market, while IBM has 70%. J. Presper Eckert, co-creator of the Univac, sticks by James Rand despite the company's decline. In fact, he will stay at Remington Rand for another 30 years through mergers and management mistakes that make the company almost irrelevant in the computing industry. With no work to feed him, Watson Sr.'s body grows weak. Scar tissue from years of ulcers slowly close off the outlet from his stomach to the small intestines. Watson feels constant nausea, making it difficult to eat. He loses weight until he looks skeletal. A year or so before, Watson's doctor told him that surgery could repair the opening and prolong his life, but Watson refused. He's never had surgery and he can't bear the thought of it now. In effect, Watson decides it's time to leave this life. He stays in the new Canaan house. Family and friends visit. He talks at length with each of his four children, trying to establish a final peace. Sunday, June 17, 1956. Two months after Watson leaves IBM, his 82-year-old heart begins failing. His doctor sends an ambulance to pick him up in New Canaan and take him to Roosevelt Hospital in New York. Through the day on Monday, family mills around in the hallway outside his room. One or two at a time go in to sit with Watson and talk with him. The family members tell Watson about the Get Well telegrams they're receiving from around the world, including one from President Eisenhower. Watson seems to hear, but he cannot respond. As the family watches, his heart stops, his lungs settle one last time, and he gently dies. A few days after Watson's funeral, a writer for Fortune magazine, Robert Sheehan, arrives at IBM headquarters takes the elevator up to the executive level and meets a devastated Tom Watson, Jr. Tom has kept his own office on the 16th floor and has no desire to move into his father's on the 17th. Sheehan finds a man trying to gather his strength 
Suddenly, the solitary helmsman at IBM, Tom Watson Jr., age 42, feels scared and lonely. He relied on his father in more ways than he ever cared to admit, and he has an intimidating job still to do. Sheehan goes back to his typewriter and bangs out the story. It is largely positive about all that IBM has achieved, but the veteran writer sees the potential for trouble ahead. He writes, IBM had grown so big, so fast, that it is inadequately organized and perhaps inadequately staffed for the billion-dollar company it may soon become. It still bears some of the psychological scars of the long-time one-man rule. Tom Watson Jr. understands that he must utterly transform the company from the way his father ran it. And there is no time to lose. Without Thomas Watson Sr. at the helm, IBM is about to become its own worst enemy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. Next time on the first computer war, Tom Watson Jr. bets the entire company on the System 360, a bet that tees up IBM's utter dominance of computers but threatens to leave Watson's family in ruins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR, iHeartRadio, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you'd like to hear more of Business Wars and other Wondery shows, in addition to extra content, early access, and exclusive perks, you can subscribe to Wondery Plus. Just go to Wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S. Another way you can support us is to answer a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. I'm your host, David Brown. Kevin Maney wrote this story. He's also the author of Unscaled, How AI and a New Generation of Upstarts are creating the economy of the future. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Marshall Louie is the executive producer. And Hernan Lopez is the creator of Business Wars. For Wondering.